It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, uh, we're obviously starting a new series. Uh, Eric started his World War I stuff yesterday. Uh, I'm starting a new series, and I'm a little daunted, if I could be, <laughs> I could be honest. Uh, wanted, over probably the last year and a half, I've just been pondering this idea of personally wanting to do a study uh, just on this idea of altars, idolatry, adultery, just, just that realm. And a, a lot of it came out of, uh, I guess, my own heart, my own desire to seek the Lord, and just been pondering this idea of what does it look like to be fully given to Jesus Christ? Uh, what does it look like as I'm looking at the modern culture of, or the landscape of our culture to realize that, all right, we as, as the bride of Christ are called to be a pure and spotless bride. And yet I look at the church and it's almost like I see, I don't see purity. I don't see holiness. I don't see righteousness. Uh, I, I see, I, I see a lot of good religious stuff but where, where is this epic reality of givenness unto the Lord? Uh, where is that group of people who come to the Word of God and say, this is true, that I don't want to justify my behavior based upon my experience or my preferences or however I want to identify myself. I, I want to submit myself to the reality of God's truth and say, Lord, uh, you are right. And so I've just been wrestling for, I don't know, probably a year, year and a half, and saying, okay, at some point, I would love to just to do a study and look at this idea of idolatry. Uh, because I look at the modern landscape and I see, if, if I could put it into, into terminology, the, probably the key issue that I'm seeing in the modern church is that we, we have a major issue with idolatry and adultery. And I know that we don't, probably nobody in here has like little, little Buddha statues. Yoda, maybe. But, uh, but not Buddha, right? So we're not just worshiping at some graven image. But do you realize that biblically an idol is more than just things made out of stone and wood? That it is a disposition of the heart. And as I look at, again, as I just look at the landscape, it's like I, I feel like the church has just been sucked into idolatry. We've lost our first love. We're committing adultery with the world, as the Old Testament prophets would say, that we've succumbed and given ourselves over to all these even seemingly good things other than Jesus. And so again, this is just my own personal study. And I decided, hey, wouldn't it be fun to take the summer and just study out this concept of altars and idolatry and adultery? It sounds miserable on one level. <laughs> uh, and it's interesting, over the last couple of months, I've just been studying and I, I feel like I don't, I don't know how to say this well. I feel like I've gotten lost or I'm drowning. What are the terminology you want to use? Uh, I was talking to Eric when we were discussing what topics. He says, like, okay, I'm going to do this. And I said, okay, I'm going to do this. He's like, are you sure you can, like, do 28 sessions on that topic? And I'm like, well, I, I'm sure I could, you know. And the more I've studied it, the more I've realized I am in trouble. Because it just like it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and I'm like, Lord, I don't know what to do with all this. So I feel like I'm in a very odd place because we are starting the series today, <laughs> oh, uh, and yet I feel like I, 
I have a sense of where it's going, and I have no idea where we're, I have no idea where we're going. <laughs> because I feel like it's one of those things that it's almost like I probably should have just studied it for like two or three years and then said, okay, let me distill all of this into some sessions. And that's not what we're doing. I'm studying it as we're progressing. And so I've, I feel a little daunted. Uh, so over the course of these next several months, I have no idea where we're going to end up, except to say, hopefully, closer to Jesus. Uh, so I'm calling this entire series Soul Drift, and uh, this particular series, or this particular episode, I'm calling Soul Drift and Broken Cisterns, and I really just want to cast a vision of where we're going. I just want to talk about the concept and then kind of give you a quick nugget and kind of tell you maybe where we're heading, <laughs> God willing, through this whole thing. Uh, I don't know if you ever listened to uh, Leonard Ravenhill, but I, I love, love Leonard Ravenhill. Uh, Ravenhill, I would consider one of my snuggle buddies. And I, over the years, I, I've realized I need a better terminology because as a man, to say I have snuggle buddies sounds really, really awkward. Uh, but it's okay because all my snuggle buddies are dead. So, uh, <laughs> I don't know, it's, it's, it sounds horrible. But, uh, <clears throat> and, and, I, and I don't even remember where it first started, but I remember I was teaching some session here and I was talking about the fact, like, there's these, there's these men in Christian history who've had a, just a deep impact in my life. You know, people like Andrew Murray or A.W. Tozier, uh, Samuel Bringle, J just some of these men of God, uh, Ian Thomas, that have just, they've deeply blessed my soul. And I made some comment one day into one of our classes, and I said, you know, it's like, you know, like when I read Andrew Murray or Oswald Chambers or Tozier, I feel like I'm hanging out with a best friend. And I just, I love these men. I love their passion for Jesus. I love their insight into the word of God. And I, and I feel like when I'm reading, it's like I have a cup of tea, especially like with Ian Thomas or Ravenhill because, you know, they're British. Andrew, Andrew Murray was Scottish. Oswald Chambers was Scottish too. Apparently, I like the UK people. But it's like you have a cup of tea and it's like, you know, you want to cuddle with a warm blanket and just hang out and read their books. I'm like, they're like my, uh, they're like my, cuddle buddies or snuggle buddies. And I just, I started, I'm like, I don't like any of those terms, but it stuck. So unfortunately, uh, so I have, I have sn six snuggle buddies and one snuggle buddy yet. Because uh, Corey Tim Boom is on my list. I, I love Corey Tim Boom. Uh, she's just, not only is she just adorable as this older woman, she's, you look at her, I shouldn't just, I should not go down this road. <laughs> It's like, I just, I just want to give Corey Timboom a hug. I just like, I'm like, I just, ah. Anyway, <clears throat> let's move on. So Leonard Ravenhill is one of those guys that I just, I love to listen to. I love to read his stuff. And, and recently I've been reading through, I don't know if you've ever read his biography. Uh, it's this massive book. Uh, but there's this biography of Leonard Ravenhill. And I, I've only about, oh, I don't know, probably two thirds of the way through it. And I, I'm slowly, purposely going through it. I feel like I'm just hanging out with a friend and, and we're just catching up and I'm hearing his life stories. But Leonard Ravenhill, the thing I love about Ravenhill is the fact that he is so zealous and passionate about Jesus. That he was, he was so passionate about prayer. He was so zealous for revival. He had such a longing for the church to experience the, the full reality, the totality of what is available in Christ Jesus. And he had just had this yearning, a burden for prayer and for revival. And really, the undercurrent of it was holiness. That, that we are to look like our Savior. That we are to be Christ-like. That, that we are not just to 
frivolously live with the world around us, but that we should be set apart and different and other than the world around us, which is what the word holy means. And so you, you need to realize that I personally just been burdened for the, the global church, and I'm looking at the church saying we need revival, that, that we, we are caught up in this idolatry and adultery with the things of this world, which we'll eventually get more into. But we, we need to return to our, our first love, uh, which is what Jesus says in Revelation 2.4. He's talking to the church in Ephesus, and, and he says, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. And, and it's interesting because as you look at the modern scope of culture, there's all these people. I, I spent a lot of time in the South. I spent about a decade in the South. And everyone in the South is a Christian. I mean, you just walk down the road. Hey, are, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Do you go to church? Sometimes. But you look at their lives and you look at how they live and you look at how they think and you look at how they talk and you're like, buddy, I, I'm not so sure. Because your whole life is all about you. Your whole life is wrapped up in everything but Jesus Christ. So though you may be proclaiming something, your life doesn't show it. And I think that's a great statement of our modern day. That, that we have a great lip service for Jesus. We, we may have the marks in our pews of saying, that's my seat. But do we actually have the fervor and the life, the love for Jesus Christ? And so again, over the course of this little series, I want to look at idolatry and adultery. And interestingly, that those two terms are often equated with each other, especially in the Old Testament, that God looks at his people and he says, look, you have committed idolatry. And because we are in a relationship together, that means you've committed adultery against me. That you've left your spouse, God, and you've pursued all these adulterous lovers. And so I want to look at, again, just this broad ideas over the course of the next several weeks and months. I want to look at this idea of what is, it, what is an idol? What does it mean to commit spiritually, spiritual idolatry against God? Why, why are altars so significant? And I don't know if you're a part of that. You know, it's like in some church traditions, you, you know, you have the altar rail up front. And so if you're going to come seek the Lord, it's like come down to the altar. Uh, but if you go to the Old Testament, altars were a little gruesome, which I'm glad we don't have those, because you know, there'd be a lot of blood and guts. And the smell, could you imagine the smell? But altars are really significant, both in the sense of idolatry, but, both, but also in the sense of true spirituality. Uh, for example, Romans 12, 1 and 2, there's this idea that you are a living sacrifice, which means you are to be placed upon an altar. So I just want to start over the next, again, several months, look at these concepts and say, okay, what does it mean for us as believers to return to Jesus Christ? What does it look like for us to return to our first love? Uh, here's a couple quick quotes from Tozer. I just, I, again, he's one of my other good friends uh, who I cannot wait to meet in heaven. Uh, but listen, here's, here's a couple statements that he, he made in terms of this idea of worship and idolatry. He says, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. That you're entertaining all these thoughts that are actually not worthy of him. And the moment that I allow my mind to be engrossed in anything but that which is truly him, you realize that my affections and my mind have been given over to something else. Uh, he also says that the human heart is idolatrous 
and will worship anything it can possess. We were made for worship. And as you look at culture today, you realize that if you do not worship the one true God, you will worship something else. And it could be entertainment, or it could be sex, or drugs, or popularity, or your own success, or money, or whatever it may be. But we will give ourselves and worship something. And could I beckon us to return to our first love and to come and worship the Lord, our God, the one true God. Uh, as you look at the Old Testament prophets, it's, I, I'm, by the way, I'm just throwing out a whole bunch of random stuff this morning purposely, just to lay some foundation things. Uh, when, you, when you come to the Old Testament, <clears throat> it's really interesting as you read through the prophets. Uh, I hear the word prophecy, and for some people that's very, a scary word because in our modern day, we're all wrapped up in end times prophecy. Okay, none of you are excited. Um, but when you come to Old Testament prophets, the thought I have in my head, I don't know what you have, but the thought that comes to my mind is like foretelling things. It's the proclamation of something that is coming. So for example, uh, in roughly four hours, I'm going to prophesy that you are going to have lunch. That's a great prophecy for all the guys in the room. Right? Because you don't, mean to, you, don't, you don't want me to prophesy the other one. Like, we are going to take a fast today. <laughs> you know? No. Now, that's not a very good prophecy because you're like, that's in the schedule. And we will be doing that. But that's my mind of prophecy. It's something's coming. But do you realize that only about a third of the prophets, oh, I should say it this way, about a third of the prophetic books, the content in the books, the prophetic books, actually have to do with this foretelling stuff. Do you realize what the majority of the prophets are actually all about? It's a repentance message. It's a come back to your first love idea. That when you look at the heart of the Old Testament prophets, it's really about reminding people of God's laws, his standard for right and wrong. It's warning listeners of God's blessings and curses. It's to turn from sin and, and to repent. That, hey, come back. You have left the God of the universe, come back. And if you read through the Old Testament prophets, you start to hear that over and over. Yes, there is some foretelling. Yes, there is this, here's some stuff that is to come. But the heart of the prophets was a proclamation. They were, they were the mouthpiece of God saying, look, you have abandoned your first love. Return, return, return. In fact, that term, turn or repent or return, uh, it's the Hebrew word shob, shub, and it's used over a thousand times in the Old Testament, that term, which means it's probably important. It's not just happen chance. You know what? Once in a while, you should consider returning. You know, on occasion, consider repenting. That there's this idea of, there's this constant hearkening of repent, repent, return, return, which means we have the propensity to, to run away. We have the propensity not to pursue Jesus. Because if he's having to remind us to repent and return, well, that means we have our affections heading off in the wrong place. Uh, let me just give you a few passages. I just love these. Uh, in terms of using this word in looking at the Old Testament prophets, uh, for example, it shows up in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 11. And there it says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back. That's the word each of you from his evil way, and reform your ways and your deeds. 
Hosea says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. In Joel, it says, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. Get this. Why should we return to the Lord? For he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Do you realize that our God is gracious? He is compassionate that he is slow to anger, that he is full of hesed, that word for loving kindness, which for the students we'll talk about more in depth later on, that he is full of this loving kindness, this overwhelming steadfast love, that he relents of evil. And if he is that good, if he is, if he is so gracious and so compassionate, if he is so slow to anger and so love, full of loving kindness, why wouldn't you want to return? He's not some God who's waiting for you to return so he can beat you up. He's waiting for you to return so he can forgive your sins and be restored into relationship. And at some point, we're going to look at the story of Hosea, and you realize that God picks this prophet. He says, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And through the whole crazy story, God says, Hosea, do you know how I feel about my bride, Israel? That in the same way that they keep going off and committing adultery with the world, and yet you keep bringing her back and restoring her in relationship, he says, that's my heart. That he's not waiting for you to return so he can beat you up. He's not waiting for you to return so he can hand slap you. Yes, there may be discipline involved. Yes, you still got to deal with consequences of sin. But the reality is, is, as Joel says, he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, full of loving kindness that he wants restoration and life. He wants intimacy. Uh, in Ezekiel, this word shows up all over the place in Ezekiel. But Ezekiel 18.30, it's used twice in this, just this one verse. And God says, repent and repent. Isn't that awesome? And by the way, anytime you see a, a repetition in Scripture, it's there for emphasis. So again, God says, repent and turn away, or repent and repent, or turn away and turn away from all of your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block for you. Several chapters later in 33, he says, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take, get this, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would repent. He says, do you know what I delight in? I delight when the wicked repent. They turn from his way and live. So turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? And he uses that term three times. He says, repent. I delight when people repent. Which is actually what Jesus says. If you remember Luke chapter 15, he tells a series of three stories. In the course of three stories, he says, you know, here's this, here's this shepherd, finds a lost sheep. What does he do? Woo! Throws a party. Breaks out the diet seven up, invites, invites the whole community in, and says, Hey, we are going to have a party. Why? Because we found the lost sheep. And Jesus says, Oh, do you realize that all of heaven rejoices when a sinner repents? It's, it's, like, it's like the woman who lost a coin and she lights the lamp and she searches the house. And when she finds the coin, woo! She invites the whole community over, breaks out the diet seven up, has a big party. And Jesus says, oh, You know, it's like heaven that just has this big celebration when there's repentance. And then he tells the story of the lost son, where the father is just overwhelmed 
when the son returns, he repents. Do you know that's how God feels in repentance? When, when a sinner repents, he's not saying, oh, you wicked sinner, I've been waiting for this, and, and beats them up. He rejoices. Why? He is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. So can I remind you as we, as we begin to walk through this series that as, as the Holy Spirit, and I'm quite convinced that there's not a single person who doesn't have some idol in their life. That the more I've been studying it, <laughs> the more convicted I've been. And I'm like, oh, I don't think I should do this series. Because I see what's coming up from my own soul. And I'm already, I'm already concerned. Why? Because it's mean, I say that in a good, in a good sense. Because it's going to mean I'm going to have to repent. Because even as I've been slowly walking through stuff, I feel God's finger on my soul saying, see that, Nathan? Yeah, that's an idol in your life. And it's, I, don't, I don't worship Buddha statues. But there's these affections or desires in my heart where I'm seeking the approval of someone else. Or I'm more interested in, in making people feel good about themselves rather than speaking truth to them or those kind of things. That, that somehow I, I, I've, I crave rest, not in Jesus, but in entertainment or a myriad of other things. And in and of themselves, it's not that it may be evil or, or horrible. It's not wrong to watch a movie necessarily. But do you realize, or it's not wrong to read a book, and it's not wrong to have fellowship, but do you realize all those kind of things can become idols in the center of our souls where it becomes idolatry. And the more I've been just looking at stuff, I'm realizing all of us have an issue. All of us have an idol problem. And to what degree, it may be totally different. But can I encourage you that if the Lord begins to put his finger on your heart, he always warmly accepts those who repent. And it's, done, it's never out of harshness. It's never out of meanness. And a lot of us have this weird, false thought of who God is that if I, re, if I repent, then I'm going to get beat up. It's like a parent where it's like if you confess that you ate the cookie before dinner, then the parent says, okay, we'll go get the spatula, and I'm going to beat you for that. Folks, God doesn't do that. Yes, there may, again, there may be discipline. Yes, there may be correction involved. Yes, you've got to deal with consequences. But the reality is he is so gracious and kind to those who repent. So can I just say from the, up, from, from the very beginning, let us seek to repent. Let us seek to return to our Lord. So that's just kind of a concept of where we're heading. Uh, what I want to do this morning is just give one quick idea, which is kind of the, maybe the undercurrent of this whole thing, and it's this idea of broken cisterns. Uh, when I take groups over to Israel and we're doing Bible study tours and we're, and we're just opening up the Bible on location, and, which is just absolutely amazing, this may be one of my favorite passages to talk about. And it comes from Jeremiah chapter 2. In, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, this is what the prophet says. God is speaking through Jeremiah, and God says, For my people have committed two evils. So get this. God is looking at Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, I want you to speak to the people. And I need you to declare to them that there are two things that they have done wrong. Well, what are the two things? Look at the passage. Number one, 
they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And number two, they have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I love this passage. It has been such a conviction in my own heart over the years. A lot of times we'll be in Israel and we will have the opportunity to go to a spring. And there's springs in a variety of places in Israel, but one of my all-time favorite locations that has living water, a spring, a fountain of water, is this place called Engedi. And Engedi sits right on the Dead Sea. In fact, uh, on the photo, you can kind of see there's this little settlement down at the very bottom of this wilderness area. And then right on the other side, kind of where the word Engedi is, is actually the Dead Sea. So it's like you're right on the coast of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the lowest part of, of planet Earth. Uh, it's, it's the lowest body of water. It's the saltiest water on Earth. And right next to that is this, this wilderness area. And as you can tell, it's a little dry. <laughs> I mean, when I think wilderness, I think Rocky Mountain wilderness. That is not Rocky Mountain wilderness. That's just <laughs> wilderness. It is dry. It is barren. Barely a shrub will grow. And as you'll notice, there's all these little, uh, they call them wadis, but these, uh, what do you call them, cavern kind of things that go up into the, uh, go up into the wilderness. Uh, by the way, from the bottom to the top, that's about 1,000 feet. Okay, so they're pretty tall. This is a pretty massive area. And Engedi is, is one of the most beautiful areas. You're out in the middle of nowhere. You're next to the Dead Sea. There is nothing. It is dry. It is barren. But as you begin to walk up, you, you kind of start near the settlement area. And as you begin to walk up, what you begin to find is that there's this water area, this waterfall, I don't know, several, uh, maybe a mile up or so. Engedi, uh, by the way, is one of the places that David actually hid from Saul. And so there's all these caves around the area of Engedi. And so we find in, in the book of 1 Samuel that when David is running from Saul, that David and his men hid in one of the caves and Saul came in to relieve himself. You know that whole story. And then David cut off a part of his, uh, his uh, robe and that whole thing. That happened in this area. And what's amazing is here's David and his mighty men and they're hiding from Saul and they're in the middle of barren nothingness. But there's one source of living water. And there's this spring. It's just this, this waterfall that just, and there's a series of them, that are just in this little area. So it is desert for miles around. But there's one source of life. One source of water. And again, there's a few of these all throughout Israel. So think about what God is saying to Jeremiah. He says, Jeremiah, I want you to proclaim to my people that, that they have committed two evils against me. Number one, they have forsaken me. They've really turned their back on me, and I am the fountain of living waters. God says, I'm a spring. I'm like this waterfall falling into a pool. There's endless waters. Or if you want to maybe you think of like a, an aquifer, right? It's like this area of water that just keeps bubbling forth, and you can never exhaust that aquifer. No matter how much water you take out, there's always more coming, bubbling forth. God says, that's who I am. I am the source of of living waters. But my people have really turned their back on that and they have done something just as evil. Not only have they forsaken the fountain of living waters, 
But he says that they have hewn for themselves cisterns. Uh, Israel is a very dry area. In fact, even to this day, water is their most precious commodity. Uh, They're very guarded with their water. And for good reason, there's not a lot of it. And so typically, because it's a very dry, barren area, especially in the ancient days, uh, if you didn't have access to, say, like the Jordan River or the Sea of Galilee, which is fresh water, well, then you needed some source of of a container to be able to catch the rainwater for the dry season. In Israel, it only rains for about five months of the year, like November through March. That's kind of the rainy season. And it rains, but there's not a ton of rain. This is the Middle East. So th- this, this is not like Pennsylvania, right, which is just lush and green all the time. This is more like southern Utah. <laughs> it's just like a little barren, and it gets a little bit of rain. So when it does rain, you want to collect it. So if you could imagine having a village or a little town, <clears throat> you, needed, you needed water for most of the year because how else are you going to survive as a people? So if you don't have access to a deep well or access to something like the Jordan River, well, then you would create a cistern. And what you would do is you would go into the rock, and a lot of Israel is limestone, and so they would literally dig into the limestone and create like this big open cavern area, and then they would take lime, the, the limestone, and they would mix it with some stuff and create a plaster. And they would plaster the inside of that cistern with this lime plaster to keep the water in. The issue was that lime plaster doesn't last forever. And so it would start to crack and it would break. And the moment you start having these cracks, the water would seep out of your cistern, which is not good because that's your water supply. The other issue you have is in a cistern, it's stale water. The water just sits there. So it gets scummy. Uh, A lot of times you'd have like dead animals that would fall into it, which would be delightful, wouldn't it? Uh, Apparently back in the day, they would take, a lot of times they'd put a little olive oil and just spread olive oil on the top uh, of of the cistern or uh, the water in the cistern. And that way it kind of keeps some of that bacteria and that kind of stuff away. And you kind of move the oil, grab some water and pull it up. But cisterns is not the best water. It's usually a little muddy. It's a little dirty. Bugs are in it. Sometimes a dead animal is in it. But at least you get water. And if you want some pictures, here's, here's some fun pictures. Uh, near Michmash, if you ever heard that in the scripture, uh, there's this little tiny cistern. And so you can kind of see this is the opening. And there's a, a hole. And they dug down into it. And so you can kind of drop a little bucket and grab some water. And what's interesting is that cisterns, they range in sizes. Uh, a lot of times, individual families would have a small little pot or some sort of a little cistern near their house so they can catch the rainwater, so they can have it. But then communities would dig and create these massive cisterns. And so the reason I love this passage is there's several different locations throughout Israel where as you're visiting them, you can actually walk into the cistern. And so we'll take the entire group and we will stand in the cistern and we'll talk about this passage. Uh, and some of them you can still see a little bit of the lime, the plaster that's still there. It's being broken off. It's falling apart. But you're seeing it. Uh, one of those fun cisterns uh, is in Herodium. Herodium is the location where King Herod built to, uh, for his burial plot. And in there, there is this cistern. So you can kind of see there's a doorway. There's a whole bunch of stairs coming down. And there's just this big open area where they would filter water into. So they would funnel water into this area so they can have water throughout the year. 
So you have cisterns that range from, you know, these little tiny house cisterns to some cisterns that are dug 100 feet deep. Some cisterns are so massive, like this one in Masada, and it's hard to see. There's a, there's a couple people in the back corner. Uh, but this cistern in Masada can hold up to 1 million gallons of water. Masada, by the way, is in that same area near Engedi, near the Dead Sea. It's on top of a mountain, and he had several cisterns. And during the flood season, the, the waters would come in, and they would just try to capture all the water. And this one cistern in Masada, this is just one of several, but this one cistern can hold up to a million gallons of water. My guess is it was never full because, again, it's a desert. But it can hold a million. That's a, do you know how much work it would take to dig out, chisel by hand, a room big enough in the rock to hold, and then plaster to hold a million gallons? That is insane. Uh, there's, there's actually, if you go to a Jerusalem, they've uncovered they think there's over 37 cisterns that have been dug underneath the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And one, think about this, one of the cisterns that they have found, of the 37, can hold anywhere between, they're not quite fully sure, but it's somewhere between 2 and 3 million gallons of water. And of course, it's all the temple work. You've got you to have the water. I mean, we're not talking, we're talking I mean, massive, massive cisterns. So, Come back to Jeremiah. God is speaking, and God says, look, my people have committed two evils. Number one, God says, here I am. I am this endless aquifer of water. I am this waterfall. I am this big pool of water that will never run dry. I am available. But my people have forsaken that. And instead of just drinking from the source of living water, they've turned their back on me, and they've come over and by the sweat of their own brow, they have dug into the rock to create their own cisterns. Do you know how ironic that is? That here is God saying, oh, I'll, give it, I'll, I'll, give it, I'll give it as much as you want. Just, just help yourself. Well, how much work does it take? None. Just come over and just put your hand underneath it. And just, but rather than doing that, you have decided that you're actually going to waste water because in the creating of cisterns, you're going to be sweating. And it's going to be a lot of effort and a lot of work. And you're actually going to be losing water in hopes to have water. And so you're going to dig out your own cistern, and you're going to plaster this thing. But God says, here's the problem. It's a broken cistern. It won't hold water. You'll keep funneling water into it, and it's going to keep seeping out. It's going to be muddy and dirty and just scummy, and dead animals are going to fall into it. How dumb do you have to be to reject God and dig for yourself your own cistern by the effort of your own brow that doesn't even hold water, and what water it does hold is just nasty? And yet that's what we've done. And that wasn't just a thing in Jeremiah's day. It seems like that's today. That we have a lot of religious pomp and circumstance and celebration and we have a lot of lip service to our God and yet we're actually not going after him. I mean, we, we put his name on stuff. Woo, I'm a Christian! But it's all self-effort and it's all dead stuff. Can I ask you, where have you been digging cisterns 
in your own soul. God has made himself available to us as a fountain of living waters. And are you drinking from that life source? Or have you says, okay, God, that's wonderful and all, but hey, I, I'm going to do this over here. And out of the own sweat of my own brow, I'm going hey, to be religious and I'm going to be spiritual and I'm going to pull this off and I'm going to... Because that's lifeless. And that only produces death. Can I encourage you, if, if you've been digging your own cisterns, do you know what you need? Jesus. Would you repent? Would you turn back, turn back, repent, says the Lord, and come back to the fountain of living waters? We need this. Perhaps to say it another way, we've been living with behavioral heresy. A heresy is a very strong term, and unfortunately it's been thrown around a lot these days because everyone can have a podcast and a YouTube channel. Everyone is just spouts their opinions and says, so-and-so's a, a hypocrite and so-and-so is speaking heresy and so-and-so is... And I, I don't discount the fact that there's a lot of junk going around. Amen. But isn't it interesting that a lot of times the same people who are so dogmatic about doctrinal heresy and getting all the theology correct are living miserable lives. And you realize there's actually two different kind of heresies. There is a doctrinal heresy. In other words, we should have correct theology. Please study the word. Please have good theology. But if your life doesn't reflect the reality of the word, then though you may have correct doctrine, you do not have correct behavior. And truth be told, if I actually think behavioral heresy is worse. Because you could know no theology and be dumber than a rock and ugly too, but if you're living Christ-like, isn't that his desire in your life? I mean, yes, he wants you to know good theology, but it's not about information. It's about life stuff. Now, you should have both. You should have good theology and good behavior. But sadly, in our modern day, we have so many people who have quote-unquote good theology, but their lives are a wreck. That's a problem. That, yeah, they might have the correct concepts, but they have hewn for themselves their own cisterns. Can I encourage you, don't just have the good language, the good theology, the good doctrine, the good information, but not have the life. God is after the life. Or as Jesus said, I have this against you. You have left your first love. That you're pursuing all these things. You have, you have hewn out for yourselves cisterns Broken cisterns that hold no water. As we just come into this series, can I encourage you to be open to Jesus? And I, I don't know what he's going to do throughout this series. I'm, I'm already a little intimidated. But what I do know is I want Jesus. And that I have been chosen before the foundation of the world. This is Ephesians 1.4. That you have been chosen before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless before him. And though, and though you are in the world, the world is not to be in you. So would you just be open to the fact that, God, I don't know what you want to do in my life, but I'm, I'm here, I'm available, and if you want to change something, I'm all in. And if you find yourself 
hewing out for yourself cisterns? Would you be willing to repent and embrace the fountain of living waters? Let's pray. Lord, the reality is we need you. Lord, in a, in a Middle Eastern culture where everything is a desert, a fountain of living water is always fresh, that it would be cool and refreshing upon our lips. But cisterns, that water's always lukewarm. It's always stagnant. It's always scummy. And Lord, how foolish we are to think that through our own, the own sweat of our own brow, we can somehow accomplish that which you're already offering for free. Lord, our cisterns would never, ever equate to a fountain of living waters. Lord, I just ask that as, as we come into this idea of what does it mean to have a soul drift, that we, we would start just, not that we've run from you, but we've just, we've gotten distracted. We, we've lost our first love. Yeah, we may still go to church and we may still have the activities, but like a swimmer in the ocean that just, suddenly realizes they, in the drift of the current, they've been pulled out to the sea. Lord, would you begin to open our eyes and our, our minds and our hearts to anything and everything in our life that we may have given ourselves to that's not you. And though you've created this world and, and, the, and the beauty and the, the activities and the joys of all of that, Lord, they are not to have first place that you are to be the priority of our souls. And so, Lord, I just ask on behalf of everyone that you would begin to put your finger on areas of our life that we need to turn and repent and come back to our first love. Lord, when this world looks upon us, may they see Christians. Not, not Christians in lip service, not Christians because we go to a church, but Christians because we are all wrapped up in and identified by you. Lord, we need you. We just thank you for what you're doing in these days. And Lord, we do want to offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you, which is our reasonable worship. Love you, Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.